electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. The debt ceiling showdown. We've had a lot of ex-state projections. June 1st from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. The street is guessing maybe a week or two later. But what actually happens when we hit the ceiling? One of our guests is here to lay things out, including the market impact. And that is precisely what our market guest is waiting for. He says the debt ceiling drama presents a lot of buying opportunities. He tells us what he's watching on a pullback. Speaking of pullbacks, lenders are already pulling back and credit is tightening in the wake of the bank turmoil. We talked to a bank CEO with a front row seat, how he's managing and how much tighter he sees things getting. But first to Dom Chu with these markets and gentle red again today. Gentle Dom. red because it is wait and see, right? We're, we're not expecting fireworks from this big meeting between President Biden and Congress, but you never know. Never so know. there's a little bit of at least cautious optimism right now. So the markets haven't really rallied strongly or sold off sharply because of it. But as Kelly points out, it's just fractionally to the downside. Overall, the Dow Industrial is down about 39 points, one-tenth of one percent. The S&P 500 is still above 4,100, 4,124 the last trade there, down about 14 points, roughly one-third of one percent. Uh, it's been a down day so far, but at the highs of the session, we were down 11 points and then down roughly 22 at the lows. So it's been a fairly tight trading range, again, fractionally to the downside. The Nasdaq Composite is the underperformer, down about one-half of one percent, 60 points to the downside, 12,196 the last trade there. Let's check on the regional banks because that is the way things go these days. It is a down day. We had a two-day winning streak, sharp upside after a big sell-off, obviously, for many of these regional banks. But PacWest Bancorp down about 3.5%. Similar percentage decline for Western Alliance as well. So snapping that two-day winning streak. Zion's Bancorp, First Hawaiian, some of the other Western U.S. regionals that have been not directly affected by the sell-off and failures of Silicon Valley. Signature and First Republic, but kind of caught up in the ripple effects. The S&P 500 regional bank ETFs down about one and three quarters percent as well. And then the stock to watch today, the worst performer in the S&P 500, fintech giant PayPal. Those shares down 12 percent right now. It was a generally better than expected earnings report. Profits better than expected. Revenues better than expected. But its current quarter forecasted get viewed as a little disappointing, even though, Kelly, we talked about this idea that more people are using PayPal, Venmo, their their total payments volumes are growing and, and above expectations still, though, not enough to kind of get PayPal going in the right direction, down 12 percent. I'll send things back over to you. Kelly. All right, Dom, thanks. Now, the markets are awaiting the outcome of President Biden's debt ceiling meeting with congressional leaders at the White House today. We're already getting some posturing headlines on the wires. Republicans setting the stage last month by passing a House bill the New York Times says would cut spending by about 14 percent over a decade. The Biden administration says it's a non-starter. But with debt service costs rising, the debt ceiling fight may just be the opening act in a new age of austerity. Joining me to discuss, Andy Blocker is global head of public policy at Invesco. And Ben White is here on set with me. He's chief economic correspondent at Politico and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Ben, you teased real talk. Not, I don't want posture. I want, what do our investors tell us? Where, what, what's going to happen this time around? All right, Kelly, I don't view this one as likely to be to be any different than the ones we've covered before, which is a lot of talk, a lot of noise, a lot of mess, and a last-minute buzzer-beating deal that satisfies pretty much no one. 
uh, out of this meeting today, I don't know where the cautious optimism comes from because there's not going to be any deal. Uh, there's not going to be even any negotiation. The White House is just calling it a conversation. Good that they're sitting down. That's mm -hmm. a good start. We've got a few weeks to get this done, probably a little bit more than the X date that's out there. Uh, but what Republicans have put forward, the size of the cuts that would be required in discretionary spending, nowhere close to anything Democrats will ever do. Republicans will not pass a clean debt limit hike. There'll be time to get to that deal. It won't happen today. It will probably happen in the next couple of weeks. We'll all gnash our teeth and we'll get a deal. Well, we're, and I guess, Andy, it always depends on the markets, right? They force a deal. They tell you when we're kind of, you know, getting to a crisis point. Um, when do you think that we... I Listen, I kind of feel bad for Treasury Secretary Yellen, right? She's handed a house to manage and no money to do so. So, of course, she has to come out here and give us these headlines to try to scare everybody into a deal so she doesn't have to keep, as a manager, right? She doesn't have to keep dealing with this. But when do you think the X date really is? So that's the trillion dollar question, I might add. Um, look, I, it's, it's, I think June 1 is actually the front end of the possible X date. And, but it can go all the way to August. And the reason it can is because if you get to June 15th, you get a bunch of tax revenues, exactly. you get to June 30th, you have a whole new batch of extraordinary measures, and that gets you to August. But if you, if you don't get to June 15th, that window is real. And so that's a very short window. June 15th is when corporate taxes are due, and that's where you could kind of get a couple months more out of this. What about June 30th? What, what different things could they start to tap into if we had to? Yeah, so on June 30th, you have a, a, an extra $145 billion that is that the Treasury is able to move off of and not pay or suspend investments in the Civil Service Retirement Disability Fund and the Post Office um, Retirement Health Benefits Fund. So that's $145 billion. That gets you end of June, end of July, and potentially to August. So that's what the June 30th importance is. So, I mean, I have to say, in a way, you wonder why we're even talking about this today. Like, yeah. sure, Ben, it's May 9th. Yeah. So maybe in the next, you know, 21 days, if I'm doing the math right, you know, the money could run out and, and maybe we hit the debt ceiling. But if we don't, then we could potentially be talking on May 9th about an issue that's not going to be front and center for markets until August 15th. Yeah, which reminds me of 2011 when we were doing this and got downgraded while I was on a bus on the way to the Jersey Shore. I was not too happy about my vacation being ruined. But yes, we have more time than we think. Part of the reason we're focused on it now is because of the partisan dynamics. It is a difficult environment, which Speaker McCarthy in the House has a very narrow window to maintain his speakership and get something through that Republicans can support doesn't want to put anything through that would be mostly Democrats plus Republicans. So the path to get from where we are to a deal is not easy to see. But the time frame is longer than June 1. Uh, and there are other things that can be done. And we could get to prioritization at some point. God willing, we don't. Uh, there are other things that can happen before we actually default on existing debt. Uh, but it is a little early in the game to freak out. Uh, but it is good at this early date to at least see the players in the same room for what one hopes would be like a cordial conversation. The risk is somebody storms out, Republicans get pissed off, then markets could uh, react. Other than sure. that, I expect not much out of it. And I think the important point to make, and Dan Clifton at Strategus makes this point a lot, Andy, but this isn't just about the debt ceiling. So even if you're sick of hearing about the debt ceiling or think that the fight is stupid, we are going to have these debates over how to manage government spending and austerity for the next couple of years, at least. I mean, so Dan Clifton's point is debt servicing costs jumped in April already to almost 13 percent of tax revenues. Once we hit 14 percent, we usually start to see that we have to have a response, an austerity response, in other words. I don't know what austerity looks like in the Biden age, but it seems like we have to be aware that high interest rates are, could probably push us to that point one way or the other. No, I think you make a good point. I think, to be honest, I think 
in the Biden age, in the Biden presidency, I think austerity at the most is kind of capping discretionary spending. I don't see any real major cuts beyond that. Um, so I think, look, the, the Republicans put out a package that now they're at the table, they can do a deal. I think what this deal is going to come down to is more on the extraneous issues, more like permitting, COVID spending, those like things like that, which can be the, the makings of a deal. And Ben, that's kind of something Peter Orsag talked about this morning yeah. when he said, you know, OK, maybe a narrow, a very narrow discretionary spending cap of some kind. Um, he also said he thought the the best of the worst options would be to use the 14th Amendment to raise yes. the debt ceiling, which is why I want to give the larger context. This isn't just about raising the debt ceiling. No. We're probably going to start to have these fights about spending on austerity every time these kinds of issues come up now. Yeah, that's right. Peter and I talked about this a bit, too. And the 14th Amendment is an interesting one in that it says the full faith and credit of the United States cannot be questioned. Therefore, uh, possibly supersedes the, uh, uh, you know, the act that established the debt ceiling in 1917 during World War I. That's not a road you really want to go down. It's a somewhat less crazy version of minting the platinum coin. It is theoretically possible. Legal scholars argue it, but markets would not like that. Some legal debate uh, going on while we're unsure about whether we can pay our bills. But yes, once we're through completely the COVID period, the inflation period, the Fed rate hiking cycle, that's when we can probably start talking more structurally about some of the discretionary spending problems we have, the entitlement problems we have. Yes, we've been saying we're going to do that for decades and decades. But as you point out, borrowing costs rising mean we will have to do it right. eventually. But it's just not going to happen now. There's too much else uh, in this economy that, that's at risk to be talking about austerity or to be flirting with potential default. It is a completely ridiculous thing to do. I guess a final uh, comment then, Andy, on that is at what point, for instance, would we start to see Social Security payments become jeopardize as we approach or pass the debt ceiling. I'm sure that's the very last, you know, tripwire anyone wants to to trigger. But kind of how, how many different things have to happen before that's the next thing on the table? Yeah. So once you pass the X date, you're going to have a situation where they're going to make sure that they make all their debt obligations uh, first, and then they're going to try to protect Social Security. But once you get past the X date, it gets very uncertain with receipts and outlays. So I, I think it's it gets very dicey. So it's not a game I'd really like to play. All right, gentlemen, we'll yeah. leave it there. Andy Blocker, Ben White, we appreciate it today. And again, that White House meeting takes place around 4 p.m. Eastern time. We had some bond auction results, meanwhile, to get to, I think, the three years today. Rick Santelli, how'd it go? It went spectacularly well, all things considered. Yes, it's the first of three auctions for a total of $96 billion. The front leg here today, 40 billion three-year notes. As you look at an intraday chart, you see the way yields fell it's straight up one Eastern. Well, that was because it was a solid auction. I gave it an A. The only reason I didn't give it an A plus is because it was one category that was on the light side. Let's go through it. 3.695 was the yield at this Dutch auction, which is many basis points below where the one issued market was trading. And if you look at the bid to cover at 2.93, uh, that was the best since March of 2018. Indirects. 73.3, Kelly. I don't see a higher number than that on my 20-year uh, run of information. Direct bidders was the category that was light at 13.7. And dealers take 13%, a very low amount, which really speaks volumes about the good demand at this auction. And the fact that it's a short maturity, only one of two, two-year and three-year, are the only maturities that took out their fall high yield closes hmm. this year, even though after that, of course, they dropped like a rock in a river. 
We'll Back see. to you. <laughs> we will see if they drop like a rock again. Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Debt ceiling drama is not the only concern for investors right now. According to the Fed's latest quarterly loan survey, banks are positioning for an economic downturn, reporting tighter lending standards and weaker demand for commercial and industrial loans. Those conditions were seen across all business sizes as well. Here to weigh in is Ron Koshevsky. He is the chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Ron, it's good to have you back. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I mean, before getting into this issue about loan demand and loan availability and all the rest of it, I mean, what do you think is going on with the banking system? We, we get the weekly updates. They tell us maybe things have stabilized, but no one feels that great about the situation. And there's <clears> been no movement on the deposit insurance like you were calling for, at least on the business side. Well, the FDID, FDIC did come out with a proposal and, and their pro- preferred proposal was something that I certainly feels the right one, which is to uh, expand insurance for business deposits. But, you know, Kelly, it's all interrelated, all right? Uh, the banking uh, system is is under some stress, and they're under stress because of deposits and, you know, a, a one month that's yielding five 50. That's causing a lot of cash sorting, we like to say, in, in our business. Uh, you take combine that with the failures and then the regulatory response. And what people are talking about is not making loans. They're talking about increasing liquidity and making sure that the deposits stick around. And so that is called a tightening lending environment that will impact the economy. It's not really that difficult to see. The The problem will be that we don't have an overly zealous regulatory environment that even puts tighter screws on this on this issue. Oh, sure. You know, one of the things that jumped out to me about that loan officer survey yesterday was weak demand. You know, we keep talking about the banks, the banks, yeah. and are they lending? Are they, well, it doesn't matter if there's not a lot of demand for loans. Why do you think that is? Well, because loans are, are now uh, what we used to be able to borrow at 3 to 4%. Now you're borrowing at 8 to 9 And uh, when you put that in your HP 12C calculator, uh, <laughs> what you can afford to pay, whether it's a house, an office building, or making an investment in M&A, if you're financing it with debt, your ability to pay has gone down. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, that's effectively what the Fed intended to happen. That's why they raised rates in the first place, was to slow down the economy. So this is all to be expected. I think the bigger thing is, I'll say this, Kelly, the Fed needs to stop right here, right now, uh, okay? And they need to look and look at the data. I think inflation will come in tomorrow a little bit, but uh, we, we've reached a point where the next couple of moves, I think, uh, brings recession into play. And so What uh, if Chair I'll Powell say says, you know, Ron, I take your point, but I'm sorry, my heart is not with you. My heart is with, uh, you know, the American people and they're suffering from inflation. Well, no, I think that uh, that's right. And uh, the heart should be with the people who would lose their jobs in a recession mm-hmm. uh, when you'd see the unemployment rate potentially, you know, get up to six, seven percent. So it's look, the chairman Powell has the toughest job in the world. I'm not suggesting that I gave you my opinion, which is that you're seeing enough things break, enough things come under pressure that uh, it doesn't uh, hurt to take a little account of what's going on. And uh, you can always move. But I think that the inflation, we'll see tomorrow, but I believe that we're at a place where we can pause not only rate increases, we can pause QT uh, a little bit and let this uh, economy get back on 
uh, steady footing. Yeah, draining deposits the from bank. the system. Right, absolutely. So, you know, we look at the data coming in. It's 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 lagging. Granted, the lagging employment, inflation, it looks sturdy. But do you think that the risk of a sudden stop in the economy has grown or or is growing? Uh, you're talking about a recession. Yeah, but kind of like you know, a, a more of a, a climactic crisis type of event that that triggers that. Yeah, I you know that would I, that would be a geopolitical event, and in, in, in my opinion, I I think a lot of people got all you know got excited about uh, a couple of banks that failed. You know, I was in the business in the 1980s. There was a, the the savings and loan crisis was much bigger to the economy than what this is. So I I I don't see that. In fact, Kelly, I, we see the market rallying from here. I mean, there's so much negative sentiment. You know, the old adage that markets climb a wall of worry. Uh, we actually. Our S and P forecast up five percent. I saw that just yesterday. I saw that. I saw that. that was a yeah. great. Yeah, and so yeah, and I, you... the fact the fact that you're you're smiling makes me even more bullish. No, I, <laughs> so, I listen. I, I hear Barry, and he's raising it to forty four hundred. While he and others are all going, yeah, we're going into a recession. I'm going. Why do people want to keep chasing this? I don't understand. I mean, it's like it's like we're all having a wild party, knowing that you know that this that this terrible ending is coming. I don't know. It's odd. I don't know what wild party we would be having. I, I don't. The market's any, here to any, date. Not the market since Jan 1, Ron. This is not what anybody thought was going to happen. True, true. But I think that there is a, a lot of negative sentiment. And I believe that if you look at the yield curve, what's it really telling you? It's telling you that short-term rates are going to come down. You don't, it's not, you don't have this much of an inversion at the short end of the curve. Uh, with the 10-year where it is, unless you believe that inflation will come in and rates will come down. Uh, it, it's, they're not going back to one or two, and nor is inflation. But we're not going to sit with this kind of an inversion in the yield curve yeah. uh, for, for, you know, for much longer. I think you think you're in a good mood because I saw that first pitch uh, that you threw out <laughs> on Tuesday. Don't you know about the Jersey patch curse? Stri- it's a curse. Wait, I want to talk about that. Kelly, I want to talk about the pitch. It was a strike. Don't put a speed gun on it, but it was a strike, okay? Well, of all the things we are showing, it's you and the mascot, uh, the Cardinal. So, uh, Ron, thank you so much for your time today. Congrats on that. I know you guys are doing a lot more sports, and we look forward to checking in soon. Thanks, Kelly. Have a great day. You okay. too. Ron Grzeski is the CEO of Stiefel. Let's juxtapose what we just heard, not the baseball, talking about the lending data, with what's going on on Main Street, where optimism is hitting a 10-year low, according to the National Federation of Independent Business. Meanwhile, new data from Goldman Sachs shows 77% of small biz owners are concerned about their ability to access capital. And that's a U-turn from a year ago, when 77% said they were confident about that. And how does it compare with the NFIB's latest read on lending? Let's get to Kate Rogers for those details. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, getting some new data on the small business lending situation from the NFIB. So for the month of April, a net 6% of owners said that their loan was harder to get than previous attempts. This is down three points from the pre-recession level that we talked about last month. Interest rates are also continuing to rise for owners, of course, at the highest level since October 2007 at 8.5% on short maturity loans, according to the survey. Of note, as you just mentioned in your previous segment, the data lag, so this was prior to the latest regional banking collapse, that will have in the May reading. The group's chief economist, Bill Dunkelberg, writing, quote, lenders are raising the bar, reducing credit availability, adding, if the economy sinks into a recession, as many expect, owners will be whipsawed again. The group does note, though, that a banking crisis does not appear to be a major risk, as bad loans weren't the cause of the recent failures. Overall, small business optimism dipped in uh, April one point 
per the NFIB to 89.0. There are some signs that inflation is easing up a bit as it's still a top issue for owners, but it's been replaced in the top spot by quality of labor, which we haven't seen uh, for the better part of a year now, but owners expecting better sales fell in the month, along with those who expect the economy to improve, Kelly. So overall, not a great picture here on Main Street. No, although I was surprised that despite the rising cost of capital, Ron talked about that too, you know, eight and a half, nine percent for loans. But a lot of the respondents in the NFIB survey at least said that access to capital or the cost was not really their top concern right now. No, not the top concern. As we said, labor quality back in the top spot, which we haven't seen. Inflation wow. number two. But back to that Goldman Sachs survey that you mentioned, 61% of owners surveyed there found it difficult to access affordable capital, right? Mm. So it's not that they can't get it. It's that it's more and more expensive. They're not feeling good about the economy. Do they want to take on, you know, that high interest loan right now in this environment? I think that's the key point moving ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Kate, thank you. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rogers. We'll take a quick break here. Coming up, another view from the C-suite, this time with the head of one of the largest hotel chains in the world. We'll get a read on travel demand and the latest hiring trends, as Kate just mentioned, in a key sector of the job market. Plus, is it time to T-bill and chill until after the debt ceiling showdown? We'll look at how to protect your portfolio from all the near-term volatility. And as we go to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow's only down 37 points right now. S&P's down 14, a little more meaningful. And the Nasdaq, the underperformer with a half-point drop. Ten-year note back above 350. The exchange is back after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Choice Hotels shares a little lower after earnings, but off the lowest levels of the session. They are up about 11.5% this year as well. Company posting an earnings beat, record Q1 revenue. They raised their guidance, which very few people are doing right now, though maybe didn't raise quite as much as investors were hoping. Joining me now in an Exchange exclusive is Pat Patius. He is the Choice Hotels CEO. Pat, it's good to see you. Welcome. Great to see you, Kelly. You know, I talked and thought a lot about our chat last quarter when you really called out infrastructure and reshoring as driving demand for your hotel rooms. And I'm curious if that is still a strong tailwind or moderating somewhat. It's still a strong tailwind, and it's really a tale of two stories here. You've got the government infrastructure spending, which will take some time to get going. But what's been really remarkable is the private sector construction boom that's going on around manufacturing. In the, uh, last year, I think the number was a record number of 108 billion in spend on construction of manufacturing facilities. That number is expected to be 141 billion this year. So we are seeing both the private sector and the public sector beginning to rebuild America, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's factories, you know, we're seeing it in the hotel business as well. Um, but it's a, uh, it's a really nice tailwind that we expect to see that'll really drive demand for mid-scale hotels, for extended stay hotels, which are really our sweet spot. So if you look out to the rest of the year, then what starts to color? You know, it's, it's the obvious, right? We all know that the outlook darkens a little bit because we've just had a, let's call it a bank crisis. We don't really know exactly how that's going to shake out. Um, is that where you start to worry a little bit about the trajectory? 
Well, you know, just two weeks ago, I was with about 5,000 of our franchisees and general managers. Um, we gather once a year, and it's a great opportunity for us to hear what they're thinking about. They're seeing supply growth is muted in the hotel sector, but they're seeing demand growth expected to be at record levels in 2024 and 2025. That's the perfect time to be building a hotel. And right now, when you look at um, the ability to get capital, capital is more expensive. But for our, our size hotels, uh, the equity check that our owners write is generally they put more equity in to a uh, to a project than, than you might if you're up in more of an upper upscale hotel. So the uh, debt check that they're looking for, the loan amount, is not as large. And they are pretty optimistic about their ability to get financing. When I look at our hotel pipeline, we have about 925 hotels in our pipeline. Half of that is already financed. So mm. we feel really good about the ability to continue to grow our business because of the sector that we're in and the type of small business owners that we have who own our franchises. Absolutely. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about kind of trends and normalization post-pandemic. I know that, you know, work from home is still changing the way maybe that people travel and uh, show up at your rooms. Is that going back to normal now, though, because we know the labor market's tightening and companies are pulling people back? No, Kelly. In fact, we're continuing to see occupancy grow on what we call the shoulder nights of the weekend. So we're seeing leisure travelers extend their weekend into Sunday night and starting their weekend on Thursday night. In the fourth quarter, that occupancy rate was up four percentage points over 2019. We saw that continue into the first quarter where it was up 2% uh, as well. So we're continuing to see that remote work trend um, really establish itself. The other thing that's exciting is the, um, the number of retirees in this country is growing. When you look at the labor force participation rate of people 55 years and older, um, there's a great study that the St. Louis Fed has done that really shows there's a lot of people who retired early. And because of the value in their homes and the value in their stock portfolio, which over the last three years has grown significantly, um, they feel pretty comfortable with their net worth to retire permanently. And so those are folks who have more leisure time. They've got more discretionary income. They're living longer. They're more active. And those are great travelers for our brands. You should talk to Clarence Otis, the former Darden CEO. He said almost the exact same thing here a couple of weeks ago about the restaurants, that a secular tailwind is the retirees and that age cohort. They tend to be restaurant spenders, and he thinks that could keep restaurants going through a tough economic period. Well, and the interesting thing is, by the time we get to 2030, one out of every five Americans is going to be over the age of 65. So we're seeing three and a half million people a year reach retirement age. And so we're really beginning to see this kind of become a, a, a permanent part of our, uh, of our uh, consumer base. The other thing that they got this year was a Social Security cost of living bump of 8.7 percent. True. So they do have more spending power to stay in our hotels. Well, they... One more segment turns into a glowing review of a 65-year-old. I'm going to start getting worried. Uh, Pat, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, on earnings and everything else. It's good to check in with you. Thanks, Kelly. Take care. Pat Patius is the CEO of Choice Hotels. Still ahead, the cost cuts continue with Amazon now paying customers to pick up their own orders. Is delivery past its prime? That's coming up in Tech Check. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat maps. You can see the worst performers today, names like Intel, 3M, even Nike. Only a handful of companies in the green, about seven of them with Salesforce leading the way, although the Dow's only down 35. The exchange is back after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. NASDAQ, the underperformer, today down half a percent. 41.24 for the S&P as we continue to kind of tread water. Let's keep an eye on some of our movers, though, like Trex, which is hitting a nine-month high after their earnings showed gross margins of 40 percent. This is for the deck maker. They're also getting upgraded to buy at B of A. The note says the industry is poised to recover this year, and composite decking continues to take share despite the drop in lumber prices. About a 10 percent increase, so not bad for TREX. For more on that call, you can head over to CNBC.com slash pro. Elsewhere, Skyward shares falling. Sky is falling after the chip maker gave weaker than expected guidance for the third quarter. About a 6% drop here. Makes it the worst performer in the uh, SMH ETF today where pretty much every name, every single name is actually in the red. It's down about 2% overall, but you've got uh, on semi monolithic analog devices, even Global Founders, which isn't in the SMH, but it is down 7% today after getting hit on revenue forecasts coming in below estimates. Speaking of which, CEO of Global Foundries will be on closing bell overtime today at 4 p.m. Eastern. Looking forward to that. Let's get to Seema Modi now for a CNBC News update. Seema? Kelly, here's your CNBC News update. At this hour, a draft guidance issued by an influential national health panel today says women should get screened for breast cancer every other year starting at age 40. That's 10 years earlier than current guidelines, which suggest women begin screenings at age 50. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force said the updated recommendation is based off of new evidence showing that more women get diagnosed with breast cancer in their 40s. Jury deliberations in E. Jean Carroll's civil lawsuit against former President Donald Trump began today. Carroll said the former president attacked her in a New York City department store nearly three decades ago. Trump has denied the allegations, calling them a hoax. The jury will determine whether Trump is liable and if Carroll should be awarded financial damages. And starting this Friday, international travelers to the U.S. will no longer need to be COVID vaccinated. In a statement today, President Biden said we are, quote, in a different phase of the response to the coronavirus. The restriction was originally imposed in October of 2021. Kelly, for U.S. travelers, though, going overseas, keep in mind there are still some countries that do do have a rule that you need to be COVID vaccinated. Do you know them offhand? Philippines, I think Japan is up there as well. A couple in Asia. Oh, Seema, thank you. We appreciate it, Seema. Modi. Coming up, the debt ceiling overhang on stocks. Is it time to T-bill and chill until it all gets sorted out? We'll discuss that on The Exchange right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are in a pretty tight range ahead of the House meet, White House meeting on the debt ceiling. And my next guest says any downside volatility is an opportunity may pick up some equity. But in the meantime, the short-term, short-term fixed income and money market accounts are a great place to hang out. Joining me now is Michael Yoshikami. He is the CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Michael, it's good to see you again. And is that where you've been allocating capital, relatively speaking? Uh, we've been raising uh, money for cash, yeah. Uh, you know, as we rebalance portfolio strategies, we're always looking to see where we should, um, the most opportune place to put money. And certainly with what's happening in the debt ceiling, we don't think it's time to really go out on the edge uh, and take too much risk. However, uh, if you have dry powder and there's an initial overreaction, which history suggests might not happen, 
uh, we think there's an opportunity there to be able to move into some equities. So, and I, I heard Jenny Harrington say this last hour that she's like, man, if I had just bought Lockheed Martin back in the depths of the uh, the problems a decade ago, it would have been a great name to pick up. I mean, do you, is there a name like a list that comes to mind with that kind of opportunity that might present itself? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, all the obvious names, uh, whether it's Microsoft or Amazon or whatever, any of the obvious names, the big cap tech right now is pretty appealing. Um, I think, given the multiples that you're trading at now. But I think just generally overall the market, um, you know, there's a lot of concern about the debt ceiling. We could see a sell-off. Um, I gave your producers some data talking about how the markets really haven't sold off in the last three debt issues. One before that, the market sold off about 15 percent, and that created tremendous opportunities for investors. Yeah, so I guess the issue now is if everyone's using the playbook from last time, this time, they're waiting there, waiting for the sell-off, waiting to pick it up. Is it possible the sell-off doesn't happen? Yeah, it's very possible. And I think in my view, it's likely the sell-off doesn't happen. Really? Uh, Yeah, I I just, I I think this is going to be, the thing about Biden, he's very much a negotiator. And so I think that even there's a lot of positioning right now, I think in the end, if in fact they don't come to a debt agreement, they may come to a debt extension, which they've done before. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be very, very short lived. I mean, when you start having Social Security checks uh, not bouncing, but not being sent out, um, all of a sudden the issue gets resolved. And I expect that's what's going to happen this time. So if we don't have a pullback, then there's no need in having that list of stocks to buy on a pullback, which means you have to buy it now and chase it. Or do you wait for a worsening macro or how do you then get an entry point? Uh, well, first of all, I could be wrong. <laughs> there might be an entry point <laughs> with the market trading lower. I think that what you want to do is look at some names that you would buy, whether or not there's a pullback. In other words, good valuation names, and then try to get them at even more of a discount. And in the meantime, um, I heard you say in the previous segment, which I liked, uh, what did you say? Chill and Oh, T-bill and chill. T-bill and chill. I, <laughs> I think Goldman, really- Goldman coined that. But by the way, it was before the bank crisis, so it doesn't seem so chill anymore. Okay, yeah, not so chill, exactly. But, you know, I think you're getting four and a half, five percent on money market accounts right now. That's pretty appealing. Um, so even if there isn't a pullback, and even if you don't have an opportunity to drop into some equity, you're still getting a five percent yield, which is not bad, even though inflation is about five percent right now. I guess as a last question, is there anywhere you have high conviction that you would say, you know, you're out of consensus with the market? Really, anything that you're excited about that people aren't? And we haven't really talked international. I don't know, you know, if China, we, last time we well, checked in, you're still a little cautious. Let, let's talk about it from a perspective of something that I'm particularly not excited about, hmm. which is China. Hmm. Um, I, I think that there still are very big structural problems in China as they convert, and people don't really get this, as they convert from an export economy to an internal consumption economy. That's going to cut GDP in half. I don't think the market's pricing that in. In half. We did start to see this in earnings. Absolutely. Estee Lauder, a few other names, they were stumbling. And you're going, wait a minute. You'd think with all this pent-up demand, where'd it go? You think this transition cuts their GDP by half? Yeah, I think in the end, over the long term. Well, remember, China used to be a 10% GDP country. If they go to 4 or 5% GDP, that's great compared to the United States. But compared to China and the expectations for China, it's not so great. See, Kelly, it's about whether your economy is based on exporting goods at a cheap rate with low labor costs, or if income goes up, internal consumption. And that's where China is right now. Income is significantly higher. Therefore, they're focused more on internal consumption, which is going to naturally slow down GDP growth and naturally, in my view, will affect the equity market as well there.
Oh, sure. And there's uh, some disappointment, like I mentioned already, in some U.S. stocks hoping for big opportunities there. Michael, we'll leave it there. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, John. Michael Yoshikami with Destination Wealth Management. Well, the tech cost-cutting measures continue, and Amazon will now pay customers as part of its latest efforts. Spotify, meanwhile, is purging tens of thousands of songs thanks to AI. We've got all the details next. Speaking of AI, IBM taking another chance on Watson. CEO Arvind Krishna will join Scott Wapner on Closing Bell Overtime to discuss that today. Don't miss it. The Exchange is back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. You could nab an extra 10 bucks just for walking to your local Whole Foods. Amazon is giving select customers and Alexander Hamilton to pick up their package from designated locations rather than have it shipped to their home. Deirdre Bosa has more in today's Tech Check. I'm thinking about it, Deirdre. Well, as it turns out, Kelly, logistics is hard and expensive. Probably no surprise. Amazon, though, has poured so much capital into building out its network, and they've been rewarded. But others like Shopify, they've tried and failed. As you mentioned, even Amazon may now be trying to shave some costs off of its logistics juggernaut by offering some Prime subscribers 10 bucks to pick up their own packages from an Amazon pickup point like Whole Foods. That follows other incentives around the edges that Amazon offers, like encouraging customers to group packages on a single day, a dollar to push out delivery dates, or even a small fee for UPS returns. Amazon, for its part, says that this is not a cost-cutting measure. They've offered this type of promo before, and they say this is all about convenience for the customer. But even that, Kelly, raises the potential challenges of Amazon's network against that traditional brick-and-mortar retailer like a Walmart, which Walmart says 90 percent of the U.S. population lives within 10 miles of a store. I don't think you live that close to a Whole Foods. I could be wrong. I do. I do. Half a mile. Half a mile away. For you, it works then. Uh Maybe not for the average American, though. I think the average American lives closer to a Walmart. Definitely not. Um, But I think that you're right when we talk to the retailers and and the analysts and all the rest of it, and they say the buy now, pick up in uh, store, the BAPIS, what's it called? Buy and pick up BOPIS. But anyway, (laughs) that is kind of the new, the best opportunity. It has pretty good margins. It, you know, works well for them. The customer's happy. And so Amazon now needs to match them at that strength. And Amazon, remember, doubled its network capacity over the pandemic, spent billions and billions of dollars. Walmart is simply using what it already has, those brick-and-mortar stores, spending a lot of money, yes, on the back end for that e-commerce piece of it. But they have this, what did you call it? Buy, Bopus. Bopus. Buy Bopus. online. <laughs> they, they, pick up in store. They have that built in. And, you know, during the pandemic, we got trained to sort of order online and pick up if you want it immediately. So Amazon, you know, still trying to be everything to every consumer, but it's going to cost money in different ways. Yeah. And we saw again in their earnings, those margins are slim to begin with, yeah. retail margins. Uh, let's talk Spotify, which is now using, is it using AI to purge songs or who's <laughs> Boomy? What's happening here? Okay. Um, This is wild, actually. So Boomi is an app where you can make music with the assistance of artificial intelligence. That's not really new. People have been doing that for a long time. What is sort of new is that a lot of those songs are ending up on Spotify. Kelly, do you remember The Weeknd and Drake? Yes. Their AI-generated song? Yeah. Exactly. And it was a huge, a gigantic hit. So more people are listening to this. But also, there's more bots on Spotify moving up the song count, right? So it sounds like more people are listening to these hmm. to these songs, but they're not actually. These are just AI bots. And I know this is really confusing and kind of circular, bots on bots on bots. But I think the point is, 
is that we are starting to see very quickly the unintended consequences of generative AI, of AI being put in the hands of consumers. And that's leading to all sorts of problems with copyright, with listen counts. Um, there was one stat that uh, my producer Jasmine just identified to me. Boomi says that it has created nearly 14 percent of the world's recorded music. So 14 percent of the world's recorded music, it says, is generated by AI. And in a way, I say we should embrace this as long as the Drakes of the world can get their due, right, can get royalties somehow. Uh, well, that's the question, right? Are they able to? And it's already such a difficult issue. Who gets what? How are you breaking up? The artists, you know, don't necessarily get enough of that because so much is being shaved off along the way. I mean, if you're bringing AI into this, I mean, but then on the flip side, folks would argue, too, that AI will help solve this problem. AI can do yeah, everything, yeah, Kelly. It exactly. just depends. Boomy and Bopis today and Bosa. Uh, Deirdre, thank you very much. <laughs> we appreciate it for Tech Check. Uh, by the way, speaking of AI and how to deal with it, FTC Chair Lena Khan will be on Squawk Box tomorrow around 8.15 a.m. Eastern. Make sure you don't miss it. And coming up here, shares of Primerica a little lower today on a revenue miss, but they did beat on earnings and saw net inflows into investment products. We'll talk to the CEO about the health of the American consumer next. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian, American, and Pacific Islander heritage with stories of some of their influential business leaders. Here's City Private Bank Global Head, Ida Liu. It's really important for allies and those not in the Asian community to understand some of the values and the cultural nuances and the cultural beliefs of Asians, right? For an example, we're brought up to be super humble, to be modest, to not tout our accomplishments, to work hard, to keep our heads down, uh, to be quiet, to not boast, to not brag. Um, those are sort of the opposite things that you need to have to be successful in corporate America. But just knowing that and knowing that there's differences culturally is half the battle to understanding more about the Asian heritage and the Asian culture. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Primerica slightly lower today after beating on earnings but missing on revenue estimates after the bell. The life insurance company also saw a 14 percent uptick in issuance from the prior year. And the stock, by the way, is up about 28 percent since Jan 1. Joining me now to discuss is Glenn Williams. He's the CEO of Primerica. Glenn, it's great to have you here today. Welcome. Good to be with you, Kelly. Would you consider yourself a beneficiary of this kind of high bond yield uh, era? Well, the increasing interest rates do aid most life insurance companies. While we're a term insurance company, it doesn't help us much as some of the others, but it's it's certainly a positive for us. Talk to me about term insurance. One of the things the last couple of years, uh, to my understanding, is that a lot of millennials, because of the pandemic, started realizing, hey, maybe they need life insurance. Have you guys noticed that as a driver of your trends? We clearly saw during the pandemic the demand for life insurance increased, uh, and you can imagine why. And that happened across all age groups that we saw. But I do think millennials are taking a particular interest as they age into the period of more responsibility for others in their lives. We do see them coming forward and uh, needing financial guidance and protecting their families more than before. How expensive is the product? Is it a headwind to people who want life or term insurance? Well, we serve the middle income marketplace, Kelly, and, and they are living a difficult time right now. Many of your guests have talked today about uh, frightening topics. And so middle income families hear about a bank crisis or a debt crisis, but they're living a cost of necessity crisis every single day. And so they're always prioritizing in their budgets, looking for the most valuable things to spend their limited money on. But we do find that they place a high priority 
on protecting their families, investing for the future and getting out of debt. So we are seeing a good, strong demand. And what about investment products? Is that something that for you guys is a big part of the business? And is it, you know, how does it compete with, again, what we have with pretty high rates on something as safe as a treasury bill? Yeah, the, there are headwinds, obviously, in the investment marketplace right now. We're a long-term, systematic investing type of uh, companies, the type of guidance that we give. So any time to start is a good time, as long as you have a systematic plan to invest over a long period of time. So we do see the periods of headwinds and tailwinds, but uh, we are seeing good net flows, as, uh, as you mentioned, in our business right now. So we're seeing more people you know, coming to us to invest than we are seeing redeeming for those financial uh, challenges that they're experiencing. So there's good, strong demand there in spite of all the noise around us. I'm curious about annuities, which are starting to get more interest lately. I believe you guys offer some of those products. I'm thinking more about kind of the fixed annuities someone might get, uh, you may pay out in conjunction with or after a 401k plan. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty, like you talked about, in this idea of, hey, I know what my income stream is going to be is very attractive to people. I think they're making some moves maybe to start offering them in 401k plans or, or uh, you know, corporate plans. Do you think there's going to be more interest in annuities in the years to come? Well, we do see a shift toward annuities during uncertain times because of the guarantees that are embedded in the product. And so that's what we're seeing today in this uncertainty. And, and I think that's probably consistent with the rest of the industry, even outside the middle market where we live and do business. So I do think there's going to be increasing demand. I, I do imagine it will ebb when uh, there's more confidence in the future of the market. And some of these frightening dynamics that we're discussing today uh, start to ease some. I think you'll probably see a mixed shift back to uh, less guaranteed products. Right. And would you say that the bank crises we've experienced the last couple of months overall have been kind of a headwind, or is there any opportunity there for you guys? Well, you know, as I said, the, the middle-income market knows about that. Uh, middle-income families, clearly it's frightening. And so there's an emotional impact, if nothing else. If they don't see it in their day-to-day -day finances yet uh, or see it at all, they still have that emotional reaction. And we find most middle-income families are looking for someone to help talk them through it and walk them through it to get to the right place. So it's clearly a headwind, but it may not be affecting every middle-income family every day. Right, because, you know, obviously CEO of Choice Hotels said he thinks that's segment still holding up. You think that uh, population group is still going to be doing fine six or nine months time? Well, they're a resilient bunch. As you know, we, we survey the middle market every quarter to make sure our fingers on the pulse of how they're feeling uh, and their their views of how deep a crisis is or how much opportunity is available. And I'm always amazed at how resilient and optimistic they are. But we are seeing reduced savings rates, increasing use of credit cards, less confidence in their ability to save for the future. And so uh, over time, it's starting to put some real stress on middle income families and their budgets. Interesting. Glenn, thanks for joining us with those details. We really appreciate it. Great to be with you today. Glenn Williams is the CEO of Primerica. That does it for us here on The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.